breaking down the news, going beyond the headlines, and unpacking the stories that we're told. I'm James Matheson, and this is Today Week. Over in the States over the past few weeks, a special Senate committee hearing has been sitting in Washington where the most decorated and senior military official in the United States, General Mark Milley, has given testimony about the absolute debacle that was the military withdrawal from Afghanistan. Remember that story? Dominated the media for a week back in August and has now sort of wafted into the ether as we go back to our normal programming of not really giving a shit about that country or the people in it again. That's sort of how the news works. General Milley testified that the withdrawal, in essence, was a logistical success, but a strategic failure. A logistical success, but a strategic failure. I mean, it's that sort of language that never gets us any closer to understanding what happened and what went wrong. You know, four presidents, 20 years, 20 years, 50,000 civilians dead, and I think it's almost $2 trillion, trillion with a T, and you get to these hearings and language like this litters them. You know, military leaders give testimony and politicians stick to the script and everyone looks like they're very serious and that they genuinely want to examine what happened and what went wrong and what are the consequences and what are the learnings and what can we take going forward. But it's a show. It's a performance. It's all theatre. And if you think otherwise, try and think of one person in power, one leader, one politician, anyone, anyone who's ever felt any consequence for any of the multiple disastrous interventions that America has found itself in decade after decade. One person. And when you realise you come up blank, it's when you sort of realise it's just the same story over and over again. A country and, and a government that just refuses to be honest with itself. This sort of, you know, gross consensual amnesia. We just forget all the atrocities that happened, forget the failures. And that way, you know, in a few years' time, we can roll them out again and spend trillions of dollars again and keep the military-industrial complex happy and the military contractors' profits continuing to rise. And so, sure, have a commission, have a hearing, have an investigation, but there's never any justice. There's no accountability. There's never any apologies or repercussions for the people involved. It's just devastation for the people left behind. Of course, the United States isn't alone in its failures. Australia also was involved. And when that chaotic withdrawal happened, we left hundreds of Afghans who helped our own military We're talking about local staff and interpreters and their families who volunteered to help our men and women in service over there who knew the risks, who knew what they were getting into and who, when it came to the crunch, were left behind. To be fair, we got many of them out, but almost 200 
were trapped in Kabul with really no way of getting out. And then these are people who risked their lives to help Australian troops, people who worked side by side with our own, people who signed up willingly because they believed in you know what we were doing and believed in fighting the Taliban. And the fact that we had plenty of time. I mean, that withdrawal agreement was signed in February 2020. Um, we closed our embassy at the start of this year and still we, we didn't do enough. It's shockingly negligent. And when you compare our lack of urgency to get those Afghans out, who, as I said, risked their lives for Australians, many of whom wore our uniform, when you compare what we did for them versus the rhetoric of this government, in particular Peter Dutton, a few years ago when white South African farmers were experiencing violence and land sieges in South Africa in 2018. I mean, in that example, Peter Dutton assured us that these farmers deserve special attention. He was adamant that we need to fast-track their path to Australia on humanitarian grounds. So when you've got white farmers in South Africa experiencing a level of violence in a problematic but functioning democracy, they need to be fast-tracked here. They need to have special, urgent visa approvals to get them to our shores. But Afghans who'd given their lives to assist us in a nation that's been overrun by people trying to hunt them down, they're helping us. Oh, we don't rush that. Let's, let's, not, um, let's not go crazy getting them home. I mean, I think it's clear to everyone just how that works. Anyway, to talk more about Afghanistan and how it all went wrong and also about our relationship with America and how it might not make us as safe as we think it does, I'm joined by Dr. Emma Shortus. She's a historian and writer focused on the history and politics of the United States. She's also a research fellow at RMIT and is the author of Our Exceptional Friend, Australia's Fatal Alliance with the United States. Thanks for joining us, Emma. Hey, thanks for having me. Now, tell us a little bit about your assessment of the withdrawal of the US from Afghanistan. I mean, people have talked about it as a, a clusterfuck, as chaotic, but there's a sense around it that it was in many ways inevitable. Yeah, look, I, I think anybody who has a kind of sense of American history and American wars like Vietnam and who had grown up really with with the war in Afghanistan, there was a sense that something like this was you know, pretty likely given that history. Um, I guess what I would say is that I don't, wars don't generally end well, you know, wars don't ever end well really in a satisfactory way. But the fact that this was foreseeable for so many people and then still happened, you know, that it's still this utter disaster and a a moral failing makes it, you know, I think particularly shocking to watch and and for Australians you know because we're we're directly implicated in what's happening. And how does something like this happen broadly speaking? Is it a lack of intelligence? Is it a lack of acknowledgement of what's required on the ground? Is it bad intel? Is it just hubris? Is it um, a misunderstanding of culture or is it all of those things? 
I, I think it's all of those things happening at once. I think if you if you look at the kind of immediate failures in terms of the withdrawal, I think, you know, it could be put down to intelligence failures, but also just planning failures. You know, the the Pentagon, so like the kind of defense establishment of the United States, is basically geared towards perpetual war. And so was really not, I think prepared for a withdrawal like I think they didn't really believe until the very last minute that Biden was serious about this because the US is engaged in forever wars so there's that kind of immediate factor but then more broadly if you look at not just the war in Afghanistan but the war on terror the war in Iraq um, this is about American hubris you know it's about a complete failure to appreciate context and history and that has really serious implications about, you know, how how the war is fought because I think so often, you know, American kind of the American defence establishment sees the only options in front of them as a kind of full-scale war or nothing at all. You know, they, they don't consider other options when it comes to trying to ensure peace, you know, not just in that region but really everywhere. It feels like here there was a sort of ability to be half pregnant though. You know, they had... Two and a half thousand troops on the ground, and there's an argument that they could have perpetuated that status quo. They kept the bare minimum of their own personnel on the ground to create some sort of stability and some sort of future for you know those in Afghanistan who who dreamt of peace. I've certainly seen those arguments that there could have been this kind of I guess maintenance of the status quo. Look, I'm I'm not sure about that to be honest I think that that situation had kind of eventuated into a stalemate because the Americans had promised to withdraw you know I think that I think that was partly why that had happened and and I also think you know again the American defense establishment is kind of geared towards always having this U.S. presence on the ground in in a in this kind of perpetual stalemate, and and that's not conducive really to what the Americans would call nation building, to to actual peace building, and to stability in the region, because there is there is great resentment um, created by the presence of American troops, you know, in not just Afghanistan but in the region broadly. I think, and you know, for very good reason. And so I don't think that that was sustainable and again you know joe biden was kind of elected on a platform as well of of ending that war yeah there was an interview that was doing the rounds during the week that biden did in 2020 where he commented that he bears no responsibility if the taliban eventually take over and afghanistan falls again which i thought was pretty convenient if he takes no responsibility and it seems like trump is blaming him and obama's long gone and bush has washed his hands so if he's not taking responsibility and none of the four presidents involved over the last 20 years are taking responsibility, becomes quite convenient for those in power in the United States to get involved in these, but there is never any accountability. Yeah, totally. It's super convenient. And I think it's even, you know, it's really striking that Biden is copying so much of the blame, you know, of course, for the for the withdrawal, as, as he should, but for the end of the war more generally. And, and you mentioned George Bush, who was kind of getting off basically scot-free without any kind of accountability for for starting this war but again that's kind of part of a fairly long history of of american wars generally you know you saw a similar thing happen after the end of the war in vietnam where you know powerful americans express real sadness and and regret for what's happened but don't do that really deeper reflection that's necessary about why these disastrous wars happen in the first place and how they're allowed to continue so you know, that's just a kind of continuation of those political games. And I don't, I honestly don't think that this will hurt 
Biden electorally. Like there there will be some significant pressure on him, but in the long term, this isn't going to what this isn't going to be what loses him on election. You mentioned before that there's a resentment that comes with America's presence in the region. And so does that feed into this catch-22 that America thinks it needs to be there because there's instability there, but part of the instability is due to the animus directed at their very presence? Yeah, and, and again, this is part of a long, a, a long tumultuous history of, of the United States in the world where, you know, the United States has gone, gone into Afghanistan in, in particular, you know, with a particular aim of, of finding Osama bin Laden, but when, then we see this, you know, significant mission creep and this again american hubris this idea about you know that you can just import a particularly american style of liberal democracy and particularly american capitalism you know you can just kind of transplant it straight into these other places without any context but you know the americans kind of assume that without bringing um the historical knowledge and also the the money and the commitment that's not about military intervention and so what you have is in the end you know an utter disaster if you look at places like afghanistan or iraq you know you have infrastructure destroyed you know places like schools destroyed by american bombs which of course gets a, a, an extremely resentful response and we've seen that again in afghanistan just this week where, you know, American retaliation for that terrorist attack ends up killing innocent children. And of course that, that creates a response. And again and again, you know, the American forces have just failed, I think, to really understand that and to change tactics as a result. Can you shed a bit of light on the idea of the forever war? Because I think most people in Australia and in America, people who apparently are the good guys on the right side of morality and justice, that the aim long-term is to move in the trajectory of peace. But the idea of a perpetual war, many trillions of dollars of military spending, seems to sort of make the case that there are others in positions of power who don't share that and actually profit and gain from persistently engaging in interventions. Yeah, I, I, that's what um, Eisenhower called the, the military-industrial complex in the, in the 1950s, and that is the idea that basically the, the American political and economic system is is kind of geared towards perpetual war. And I think, you know, <laughs> often American intentions are, re- are, are good. You know, it is about fostering peace and, and freedom and liberal democracy but the execution of that is often so poor that that those aims are, are lost. And I think particularly when we're talking about the forever wars, George Bush started the forever wars not in an effort to kind of foster global peace, but out of retaliation for, for the 9-11 attacks. And what you saw then was very, very quick mission creep and, and expansion, particularly into Iraq, which had nothing to do with 9-11 into this forever war because because that that war kind of never really had a clear aim or a clear mission and so then the momentum again is always towards intervention and i think you know it's interesting to see with with the withdrawal of american troops from afghanistan you'll see people kind of saying that that this means that the forever war is over and it it very much is not you know there might not be american troops on the ground in afghanistan but there are american drones flying over afghanistan and there will be for a long time um and and joe biden has said quite quite openly that he sees that as the kind of future of american power in the region and and that's you know that might be a kind of stability but it's not it's not peace i think 
that's the problem that people have in trying to get their head around it. Like, what is the motivator to the forever war? Is it defence contractors? Is it arms manufacturers? Is it just to create a distraction to what's happening domestically? Like, at, at that level, people who hear this idea, there's a disconnect between how it makes sense. Yeah, uh, look, I think that's because it, it largely doesn't make sense, you know. <laughs> like it, it's, it's it's fundamentally illogical because it doesn't make the world safer. Um, you know, it creates a, a weird kind of stability in which people far away from the United States are killed, you know, essentially almost every day. Um, and so Americans maybe, you know, feel safer, I suppose, and maybe Australians feel safer in a way, but, but we're not. And that's because of this kind of fundamental disconnect I think between you know the motivations of the war and I think you know you're right to point to the role of of the kind of kind of military capitalism in the United States where people make insane amounts of money from from these kind of wars and you just have to look at you know the way that um, stock for somewhere like Lockheed Martin has has increased just by eye-watering amounts over the over the course of the war on terror and you can't you know you can't discount that and also I think it's really important to remember that a lot of this is also about the maintenance of American power and American dominance in the world. You know, 9-11 was a fundamental challenge to American power and powerful Americans were just unwilling to, to countenance that or to reflect on why American power, you know, creates such resentment. Um, so that again and again that's why joe biden isn't ending the forever wars you know he's not withdrawing american power from the world you mentioned there about this this perception of safety i just wanted to touch on how that impacts and influences australia as well um you've written a book our exceptional friend australia's fatal alliance with the united states and also there was a recent article that you wrote in the conversation about how maybe the ANZUS Treaty doesn't make us safer. I mean, there's some pretty sacred cows that you're sticking a pin in. What's the take on that, that the ANZUS Treaty that we're all told will keep us safer, protects us from our big bad neighbours, is necessary and serves as a, a, a protectorate role? You're saying that may not be the case. So I think a lot of a lot of people assume that because Australia has this, you know, really kind of special relationship with with the United States, where the United States is our closest and more, most important ally, and I think a lot of people think that 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 ANZUS Treaty that kind of is the centre of that relationship basically gives us a kind of security guarantee from the United States. You know, if Australia ever faces um, invasion or, or kind of direct military threat, that the Americans will come to our rescue, and that's just fundamentally not true. Like the the Americans might come to our rescue if they thought it was in their interests, but only if they only ever if they thought it was in their interests, and it would be much more about their own domestic politics than than us or any kind of moral obligation to us. So there's that, you know. I think there's that kind of fundamental, uh, I guess, mythology around our relationship with the United States. But kind of more broadly, I think what that relationship does is like set us up basically to assume that we face this um perpetual military threat from our region like I don't know if you you know when you're in high school you read tomorrow when the war began like I reckon so much of our foreign policy and the way we understand our relationship with America in particular is kind of based on this idea that we face this like tomorrow when the war began scenario all the time and like well I mean first of all we just don't 
but this the kind of broader question for me is like even if that's if that's true like the United States doesn't protect us from that and why aren't we approaching our region with empathy and generosity and seeking to construct relationships where like we don't have to be afraid of that or we don't feel like we have to be afraid of that kind of threat and you know I don't I just don't think we can get away from like how deeply racist that foreign policy is and that way of seeing the world is so I guess that's my kind of like fundamental moral problem with not just like Australia's relationship with the United States but but how we see the world more broadly yeah right there's this underlying assumption that the those people who aren't like us seek to harm us because they aren't like us yeah yeah exactly like I think that's the assumption and that's that's why the ANZUS treaty was signed in the first place because white Australian governments looked out into the world and were afraid of of non-white governments and you know, I think that's deeply connected to the fact that those white governments knew that they were living on stolen land. And so there's this kind of fundamental insecurity about other people coming to kind of steal steal that land off us that we've already stolen. And that's like too often for, for me is just kind of completely overlooked when we talk about our relationship with the United States and why it is, you know, our governments in particular feel so compelled to have this like big threat kind of looming over us and, mm. and facing out at our region. Well, I think we saw it last year. I think Morrison announced, you know, $270 billion in military spending. The rationale behind it, I think he was saying that the world is going to be poorer and more dangerous and more disorderly going forward. I mean, that enables you to spend that sort of money without anyone asking any questions whatsoever. If you plant the seed in people's minds that, hang on, things are going to get more dangerous, things are going to get more disorderly, well, why aren't we spending more? You know, there's never a question of how we're going to afford that when it comes to hundreds of billions of dollars in military spending, but dare to ask if we should raise New Start for the most vulnerable in this country, it is how we're going to pay for that. It serves a purpose, doesn't it, making sure we're always a little bit scared and a little bit frightened. Totally. And I think we're, we're fed this narrative about the need to be scared, you know, particularly from China. The focus is always on China. And this is why we need to spend this like these insane amounts of money. But I think, you know, Mar- the, Morrison's kind of justification for that, that the war is going to be poorer and more dangerous and more disorderly. Like the immediate question that raises for me is then, you know, well, why aren't we seeking to prevent that from happening? You know, that's that's a choice. That's a choice that Australia is making to allow that to happen and to reinforce it by, you know, spending insane amounts of money on weapons. And I think you, you're really kind of getting to the heart of it because if we're thinking about the kind of threats that we are facing, we're talking about a global pandemic and we're talking about climate change and we're not spending $270 billion on either of those things, which would objectively make Australians and the region safer. So that that's, says so much, I think, about the mindset of, of Australian foreign policy. When you look at China and how they sort of are, are posturing around Taiwan and Hong Kong and any other territories that rightly should have their own independence, is it not rational for Australians to think, you know, we need to be on the defensive when it comes to China? I think... It's like it's really hard to talk about China and the Chinese government in Australia generally because the the conversation is like so fraught and and I think so um, based on such deep assumptions about the nature of the world and particularly the kind of values of not just the Chinese government but the Chinese people. 
I think we've kind of got to hold two things in our heads at once. Like we absolutely can and should be deeply concerned, it's morally concerned about the actions of the Chinese government in, you know, in Hong Kong, in Taiwan, in Xinjiang. So we have to hold that in our head at once. But we also have to, you know, I think too often we see those actions as completely isolated from what the United States is doing or completely isolated from what Australia is doing. We fail to understand the motivations for, for what is what the Chinese government is doing, which so often actually has nothing to do with us. It's not about seeking global domination. It's about regional security for China and the longevity of the, of the Chinese regime in particular, which is interested in its own survival. And again, that's not to say that what, you know, that what's happening then is fine or okay and or that we shouldn't worry about it but it's to understand the motivations and then how we might approach that really complex relationship in a a nuanced and um generous way you know in order to make that relationship safer for everybody and I just think kind of cozying up to the United States and being so deeply enmeshed in basically the United States military with, you know, two and a half thousand American Marines on rotation on Australian soil, that makes it almost impossible to deal with our Australia's relationship with China in a, in a genuine and constructive way. Just before we let you go, uh, speaking of relationships, one of the things that I think stuck in a lot of people's crawl was the fact that uh, diplomatic security guards, interpreters, people on the ground in Afghanistan who helped our armed forces were not put at the front of the queue. Uh, many were left abandoned, despite the fact that our armed service members were pleading with the government for months, sometimes years. Uh, Jason Skeynes from Forgotten Fighters was carrying baton for these people for years, and yet some of them have been left behind. What damage does that do to this type of relationship that we have going forward when we want to engage people on the ground in other countries who we might be dragged into conflict with? Look, I think it does a huge amount of damage, ongoing damage. I mean, I'd be careful about saying, you know, that this kind of damages um, American credibility or Australian credibility in the eyes of, you know, the people of Afghanistan or, or the people of Iraq, because I think that's pretty patronizing to those people who who know who understand the nature of american power and and australian power you know the reason that people were fighting so hard for you know interpreters and and afghan people who had assisted australia was because they knew that this was a likely outcome you know they knew that the government was likely to abandon them and that's because australia has a long history of of doing that you know it's the 20th anniversary of the tampa incident this year where the Howard government refused entry to Afghans seeking asylum in Australia. Australia has a really long history of this kind of treatment, again, of, you know, people particularly who don't look like our white governments. And so I think that's that's that ongoing damage to Australia's kind of role in the world. But, But that's not to say that people didn't already know, you know, what our government is and who they are. Are there ever times, like just at a personal level, at a non-academic level, where, because there's definitely times where I think, ah, that's not us, that's not who we are as a country, but more and more I'm starting to think that that's not true. Maybe this is who we are as a country or maybe this is who we have become. Yeah, (laughs) look, I I certainly have my moments. And and for me, um, you know, it was made so obvious in in the era of the Trump presidency when 
rightly, you know, there's so much horror in Australia about like, is this who we are? Is that we're Donald Trump's best friend in the world? Um, and the answer is kind of, you know, it's yes. Like our history with the United States led us to a point where we become best friends with with someone like Donald Trump and, and are willing to excuse everything he does. And, and we're told that we have to do that because it makes us safer. Um, I guess what I, you know, what I would say is there are examples, you know, there's the Fraser government after the Vietnam War welcoming Vietnamese refugees and, and the Hawke government after Tiananmen Square in China allowing, I think it was like 40,000 Chinese students to stay in Australia. So there are those examples, you know, we know Australia can be this moral actor in the world. I think it's really important to distinguish between those relationships between governments and powerful and influential people and then the kind of deeper um, people-to-people relationships that we have between Australia and the United States. And so, you know, I guess I at least I hope, you know, when I'm looking for hope that, that there's potential there in those kind of more grassroots movements for a real reform of our relationship with the United States, you know, changing, changing who it is we are and how the rest of the world sees us as well. Yeah, amazing. Fingers crossed. Thanks for your time today, Emma. Really appreciate it. Anytime. Thanks for having me. Emma Shortest there. If you want to find out more about her and read some of her work, head to emmashortest.com or you can also listen to her excellent history podcast called Barely Getting By with her friend... Dr. Chloe Ward. That's it for today. We'll catch you tomorrow morning as we break down the news.